We are starting a new series today called The Church That Changed the World. And uh, I'm really excited about it because in this series, as, as I accepted the call to be the senior pastor here, I started to ask myself the question, what kind of church do we want to be? Um, what kind of mark do we want to make in our community? What kind of difference do we want to have? Um, we want to, you know, what, what kind of teaching and what kind of families and, and how do we want to minister to those families and what kind of, just what kind of difference, what kind of change do we want to see happen in our world because of this church? And I started thinking, where do we look to find that? And uh, God just laid it on my heart. If we want to discover what kind of church we want to be, let's go back and look at the type of church that he created. Um, when it all began in the book of Acts. And so in the series, we're going to be going through the first four chapters of Acts, and we're just going to figure out what kind of church was it that radically changed this world. And today we're going to talk about they were committed. Now, I want to be really honest with you. Um, I've got commitment issues. It's just the truth of it. As you get to know me, you'll see it. Look, the biggest way that you know I have commitment issues is that somehow this amazingly beautiful, handsome man made it to 37 years old without getting married. And you only do that, you only do that by having commitment issues. And luckily my wife, you know, Haley just persevered right there with me and held on to the end because we got issues. It's not just big stuff like that. But when I go shopping, it's like I can't just buy a pair of shoes and say, oh, that's the shoes I want. I'm going to take that pair of shoes. It drives my wife crazy because we go from store to store and shoe to shoe. And I look at it and it's like, yeah, but I don't know about this one. I don't know about that one. And I don't know why. I can't even buy a shirt without having this stress moment of like, but what if I find a better shirt? You know, what if I find one that just fits a little bit more perfectly and brings out the color of my eyes. I mean, that's the shirt that I want. Does this shirt satisfy me? Look, this is how bad it was. This is how bad my commitment issues. So we've been here four weeks now, and we've been looking to buy a house. Um, We've been, Marjorie's been fantastic and taking us all over the place and showing us different homes and all that good stuff. And and we finally found a house that, that that we liked. And it was like, man, this is it. Let's make an offer on it. And so we make an offer. And so we're sitting on in Starbucks, right? And I mean, we've been like three weeks of looking at the internet and clicking houses and going and check things and all that good stuff. And I know three weeks isn't that long, you know, in the process of finding a house. Some people take longer. But for me, it, it felt like forever, you know, just because we need, we need a house, you know? And so we're, so we're in Starbucks and we're signing the papers to make an offer. And I have a pen in one hand and a phone in the other as I look online to see if any other houses came on the market in the last 10 minutes. And my wife is looking at me, and she says, are you insane in your brain? I mean, literally, you're signing papers to make an offer on a home, and you can't put your phone down. I have commitment issues. I just recognize it. That's just a part of me. What's funny is, is that I didn't have commitment issues when I came to be your senior pastor. I mean, literally, it took that long. It was like, what in the world am I doing? This is nuts. But it just happened. I'm not the only one with commitment issues. I read a story this week of a 95 and a 94-year-old woman who had been together for 77 years and are finally getting married for the first time. And in this interview, they're talking to this couple, and they said, well, we just wanted to kind of keep our options open to see if any... 
95 and 94. I mean, at that age, right, it's like the only option is like brains, you know, brand cereal or cream of wheat or, you know, it's like, how many choices do you have at that age? But they wanted to keep their options open. Not the early church. The early church was committed. If you look in your text, you can pull out your notes and follow along with me. You kind of see the type of level of commitment they had in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, um, I wrote about, this is Luke writing, he wrote the book of Luke, by the way. He said, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the time or date the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were committed. They had found something from Jesus that was worth dying for. The scripture says in Acts chapter 3, it says, After he showed himself to these men, and gave many convincing proofs. They were convinced. They knew. They were committed. They were all in. So what does it mean to be committed? If you're following along, you can write these things down. To be committed, you have to have unwavering certainty. What are you certain of? This world tells us that we can't be certain of much. You know, that's why we hedge our bets. That's why we keep all our options open, because there's not a whole lot that we can be certain of. But there are things that we're certain of. I mean, you're all certain that that chair is going to hold you, right? I mean, none of you are kind of leaning on the front of your toes, just taking all your weight out just in case it finally decides to give and you won't collapse down. I mean, being a big guy, that's the very first thing I do when I sit in a chair is I kind of just test it out, you know? Is this going to be, because I've sat in chairs before, that's just like, boom, you know? Bag chairs are the worst. And so you just kind of got to have to test it out a little bit. But you're all certain. I can see it in your eyes. I can see it on your face. You're relaxed. You're leaning back. You got your feet crossed. You know that chair is going to hold you. You're certain of your car, right? You dro- Well, maybe. You know, Some of you are like, bro, you don't know the car I drive. But you were certain enough to get in your car and to drive to this place without thinking, is the engine going to blow up at any moment? Is it going to run me off the road? And, you know, are the tires all going to explode and, you know, and we're just going to, I don't know. But, but you were certain enough to get in that car and to take that drive. When I, early on in youth ministry, just in youth ministry in general, we like to do these things called trust falls. Has anybody ever been a part of the youth ministry when they did trust falls? Now, when you're a young youth pastor, um, when I first started, you know, the goal is not to do just a trust fall. But you have this like certain level of bravado and, you know, wanting to show off. It's to see how high you can get your trust fall. And so I remember one night, my very first youth group, you know, we were doing trust falls. And we started out, you know, just with these kids standing them on a chair. And, you know, with a trust fall, everybody else lines up, you know, and crosses arms and holds arms across. And then the person says, do you trust? 
say, yes, I trust. And then they fall backwards and we catch them and everybody applauds. Yay, you trusted. You know, and then, and then we're like, oh, chair's not good enough. And, and so then we, so then we decided to stand them on a table, you know, and now they're on a table, you know, falling. And, and then we, you know, and then we had to take it another notch. And, and I took them outside and I was living in a house that had a basement. And so I thought it would be a great idea to stand these kids up on the concrete wall next to the basement and have them drop 10 feet into the people's arms below. So stupid. I mean, I was a young youth pastor. It's like, you know, we, we, we're our own worst enemies most of the time. And so I get this young lady up there, and her name was Tony. And I said, Tony, you know, do you trust your kids in your youth group? Oh, yeah, I trust. No, do you really trust? I mean, are you certain they're going to catch you? Oh, yeah, I'm certain. I'll, I'll do this. I can do it. I know it's really high, but I'm not scared. And I said, now look, Tony, if you don't trust 100%, if you're not completely certain, when you fall backwards, you're going to bend at the waist. And when you bend at the waist trying to catch yourself, you're going to slip through their hands and you're going to hurt yourself. Oh, that's not me. That's not me. I'm going to do this. I'm perfect. I got this. I, I trust you. I'm certain they're going to catch me. Well, you know, I'm telling the story just for a simple reason that she wasn't certain. And she stood up there. This was the first and last time I ever did one of these really hall <laughs> trustfuls. Cause she stood up on that ledge and she crossed her arms and, you know, and she was stiff as a board and she fell backward. And it was like in slow motion as I was watching her. When she got halfway, she got scared and she started to fold up like this, like a little taco. And that little taco slipped through the, the hands of the people that were right there at her rear end. And when she slipped through, if you can imagine, her foot became a projectile that kicked the kid standing there in the side of the head. Now, what happened to that poor little child when he got kicked in the side of the head? Knocked him out cold. So now I have a kid on the ground with a sore bum, another one knocked out cold, laying backwards like stiff-legged, and I'm a 24-year-old youth pastor thinking, oh my God, my youth ministry career is over just like that. I killed two children. <laughs> luckily, luckily that didn't happen. But it all happened because she wasn't certain. She wasn't certain. What? She wasn't certain. And I was stupid. Whatever. I'll take responsibility now. I can't blame a 13-year-old girl at the time. But what are you certain of? What are you certain of? Jesus says this in John fourteen six. Jesus answered, I am the way. Circle that, the way. And the truth. Circle that. And the life. Circle that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is really clear. He doesn't he leave a whole lot of options, a whole lot of different scenarios here. He just says, look, if you want to know the way to the Father, I'm the way. If you want to know what's truth in this world, I'm the truth. I'll tell you the truth. I am the truth that you're going to experience. If you want to experience real, everlasting, eternal life, I am the life. And his disciples were ultimately 100% convinced and certain of these truths. How do I know? Look what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. He says, And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. He says, I'm in prison. I'm suffering. 
I'm experiencing all the, the hardest that life has to, to, to offer. But that's okay, for I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. You see, if you want to be committed, you have to have unwavering certainty. Now, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean you have all the answers. Look, I'm a pastor. I've been one for 16 years now. And I don't have all the answers to my faith. You know, I have a good idea what the Trinity is, and I can explain it to you, and I'll have, you know, but but do I know all the intricate details of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? No, I just trust it. I just believe it. I mean, do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt 100% everything I'm going to experience in heaven? I mean, God's word is, is clear on some of the things that we know, but I don't know it 100%. I, I don't know everything, but that's okay because I know the one in whom I trust. I don't have to all have all the answers because I know the one that does have all the answers. I and mean, think about it this way. I mean, I don't know how an engine works in a car, right? I can't break it down. I can't figure it out. Like, I can't even barely put oil in it. I'm a pastor. I just don't know that stuff, right? But I know one who does. I know the guy who made it, made it well, and I'm going to trust him. I don't understand everything there is to know about aerodynamics, but I trust the pilot who's, who's flying that plane for Southwest Airlines. I trust him. And so I don't have to have all the answers in this world. I just have certainty in the one who does. So to be committed, you have to have unwavering certainty. Not all the answers, but just believing in Jesus. You have to know in whom you trust. And waving certainty doesn't mean we have all the answers. It just means we settled the question. The question is, is who is Jesus and what does he mean to me? Here's a second thought. is We have to have non-negotiable allegiance. Non-negotiable allegiance. Look, it's hard being a Cowboys fan. It really is. It's rough. Right, sister? It is hard. Man, it's hard days, especially after we were living and rolling high at those three Super Bowls. And then the wheels fell off of our, our wonderful, awesome Super Bowl machine, and we started only winning like five games. And everybody was, look, there, there are like two types of football fans in this world, those who love the Cowboys and those who love to hate the Cowboys, right? And those that love to hate the Cowboys really hate the Cowboys. And they, look, if the Cowboys lose to Philadelphia today, I promise you, I'll get like seven to eight texts or ten texts from my friends and family, you know, that don't like the Cowboys saying, oh, yeah, Romo's trash, blah, 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 your season's over. That They just love to hate. It's hard. And if you think my life is hard, my wife is a Cubs fan. Her life has been so hard for so long. And they finally have a good team. And she's just reveling in it. She's like, oh, we're going to the World Series, you know. But, but sports fans are crazy, right? Like sports fans, like there's like a whole wave of sports fans that are absolutely nuts. They like tattoo, you know, they tattoo sports logos. It's like, look, I don't have a problem with tattoos. I think they're great and cool. But there's no way in the world that I'm going to put, like, the Dallas Cowboys star on my arm. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to. I mean, I, I love the Cowboys, but I'm not going to put Tony. I've been trying to convince my wife to name our first child Tony Romo or Des, Des Bryant Nunn. She's not going for it. Um, that's the level of my fandom 
But there's no, that's not, it's never going to happen. I mean, look at her. It's never going to happen. Um, but I'm not, I'm not shaving, you know, number 88 into the side of my head like, like some fans do. They're crazy. That's the type of allegiance they have to their sports teams. When I moved to Oklahoma, one of my very first sermons in my church, um, when my senior pastor was out of town, I was talking about, one of my points, I was talking about how, you know, just sometimes you just have to embrace the crazy plans that God has for our life. And I, and I used the illustration of, I don't know, you guys being in Phoenix, you might have remembered the year the OU played Boise State here, and the game ended in like crazy fashion. I mean, they were doing like fake field goals and hook and ladders and, you know, triple reverses on kickoff drives. And like there at the end, the, 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 the score changed like three or four times. And I was just talking about how, you know, you have to just embrace the crazy sometimes and just go for it and do something because God is, is calling you to, right? And after I did this message, and it was a great sermon, you know, whatever, um, this, this old man who's, who I became really, really dear friends with, um, came up to me. He had his cane. His name was Marvin Cottom. And Marvin came up to me with his cane, and he said, Jared, so Jared, I, I want you to have a long and successful ministry here at Chartel. And so let me give you just one piece of advice. Never, ever mention the game that Boise State beat Oklahoma. <laughs> Our church was full of OU fans. And he had a little bit of smile on his face, and I was like, you're joking, right? He's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's the game that shall not be named. Kind of like Voldemort, you know, the name that should not be named. It's the game that should not be named. And I took his advice. From there on out, every illustration I used with OU was a positive, successful, hey, this is the best team in college football. And I had a wonderful ministry. But it was just because their allegiance... I mean, their football allegiance, their college, if you've ever been around an OU fan, I mean, that is, they bleed crimson. I mean, everybody bleeds red, but they bleed, <laughs> bleed crimson, crimson red, right? That's, that's non-negotiable allegiance. Look at what the scripture says. This is about Peter and John, right? They're, it's Acts chapter 3. Um, they just, they're walking through this gate called Beautiful, and they see this crippled man. I think it's actually the end of two or the beginning of three. They see this crippled man, and um, Peter and John walk up to him and say, Hey, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And they take him by the hands, and, and his legs become strong, and they pick him up, and he begins dancing and praising, and all these people gather around. And, you know, John and Peter are like, Hey, we got a crowd, and so they start preaching. And it says in that moment that 3,000 people became followers of Jesus and became a part of, were added to the numbers of the church in one moment, in one crazy, ridiculous, awesome moment, right? And so the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, they're like, we hate this. This isn't happening. You know, we don't believe this Jesus guy. And so they arrested Peter and John. They basically said, hey, Peter and John, if you continue to preach in the name of Jesus, we're going to kill you. This is where we pick up our text in Acts chapter 4. It says, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard, no matter the cost. They say, you can beat us, you can kill us, you can imprison us, but I can tell you we will never Stop above all other relationships, 
above all other things in life, to saying this is who has our allegiance. It's Jesus. Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I have felt this tension with my family. When I graduated college, and I knew that God was calling me into the ministry, and I went home for a few months, you know, just to hang out with family before, while I was looking for a job and a position to go, I felt like God was calling me to Missouri. I was the very first person in my family that moved out of Texas. And that's all my cousins, all my relatives. Everybody lived within 10 miles of each other, except for that black sheep, Jared, who decided to follow Jesus and go to Missouri to preach to the heathens. And I went. I was just kidding. They're not heathens. And I went. And my mom was like, are you kidding me? We all stay within 10 miles of each other. But I left. And I went to Missouri, and I served there for four years, five years. And then God called me to leave and to go to Phoenix. And I lived here from 05 to 08. My mom was like, okay, so Missouri wasn't far enough. Now you got to go to the other side of the country. You're going to Phoenix. Are you serious? It's like, well, that's where God's calling me. I'm really sorry. And then we lived to Oklahoma, moved to Oklahoma. And my mom was like, yeah, party time, two and a half hours away. And then I called her at the beginning of July. I said, mom, hey, guess what? Her moving back to Phoenix. Her, for her words that came out of my mouth is like, you're joking with me, right? It's like, no, I'm not kidding. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> now, one day, you're going to get to meet my mom. And that's literally, well, let me say that's not literally what she said. She said another word, but I'm saying that's stupid. Because it was a little more colorful than that. She was just expressing what was in her heart. And that's okay. I love my mom. She's a, she's a firecracker wildfire, you know? That's just my mom. And moms probably get that if their kid was telling, I'm moving across the country, you know. She's like, why would you do that? Well, it's because God's first in my life. Because I felt that call. My allegiance. I love my parents dearly. I love my brother. I love my cousins. I love all those people. But my allegiance is with Jesus. And as we get to love each other and get to know each other, one thing that you'll know is that more than I love you is that I'm going to love my Jesus first. And you should too. It's non-negotiable allegiance. If you want to be committed, it's him first above all other relationships. Here's the third thing. It's uncompromising character. Uncompromising character. See, see, see character is hard to come by in these days. You know, this week I was watching the Republican debate on CNN. Yeah. People start laughing with me, right? And I'm watching this. And the only thing that's going through my head as I'm watching this debate is that who has the character? Who has the character? Who can I trust? Who on that panel of people who says, they, says one thing is going to do it and not be like the rest of the politicians that we've ever had, you know, that says one thing and does another? Who can I trust? Who has that character that I can believe in? And whenever I discover that, that's going to that's gonna be the person that has my vote. It's who that person is that I can trust, that I believe in, who has character. I don't know if you guys saw the, the story about the two high school boys in San Antonio, Texas, who uh, about two weeks ago, they were in a high school football game, and um, a, a back linesman ref in the secondary um, threw a couple guys out of the field or out of the game. There was some fighting. It was just a wild game. And, uh, and, and at some point, a coach pulled three of the boys together and said, hey, that... 
that ref needs to pay. Now, I don't know what they meant, what that coach meant by that ref needs to pay, but two of the boys felt like that ref needs to pay meant that when the next play snapped, one of them just came up behind him, running at full speed, stuck his head in the back of this man, and knocked him to the ground. And when he fell to the ground, the guy that was playing the other safety ran up and dove on top of him and speared him in the side with the crown of his helmet. Abusive, crazy, ridiculous, right? This last week, the third boy, who also decided not that, that no matter what his coach said, he wasn't going to do it. Um, this last week, they were on CNN, and the two boys are defending themselves. And they're saying, well, the coach told us to. And since the coach told us to, we're not to blame. We shouldn't be punished. It's his fault. See, unwavering, unwavering character, uncompromising character, says that no matter who says what, you do what your conscience tells you to. And as I was listening to that, I'm a big football fan, and I'm a big believer in teenagers. Being a youth pastor for 16 years, I love them. It's, it's part of my heart is teenagers investing and care about them. But I don't want to cut these two boys any slack whatsoever. Because at some point, you need to learn the lesson that it's your character and it's your decisions that you're going to base your life on from here on out. No matter if it's a boss, an employee, a wife, or a husband, or whoever tells you to do something, it's your character. It's your decision. You have to own up to the consequences of it. That's why in Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's writing this from prison. Paul's writing this with the understanding that he's probably not going to get out of prison, that he's going to be dying, that he's going to give his life for the service of the Lord. And he says, whatever happens, see that whatever, it can be whatever, right? Family, job loss, a ridiculous temptation that keeps being thrown in your face over and over and over again. Someone hurts you. Someone hits you and you want to hit back. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. First Peter Peter writes this, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. It is written, Be holy, because I am holy. It's the character of Jesus. We're holy because he is. See, that that be holy because I am holy, that's not a command. It's actually a declaration. Where Peter's saying, Hey, you're holy because Jesus lives within you. And since you're holy, live like it. Since you have that ability and that power within you, live like it. Embrace it. Live like Jesus. We don't have a choice. When the heat is on, what's in your character? Here's a last thought. If you want to be committed, it means you have to have total surrender. Have you ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? It's a great movie. Absolutely love it. In this movie, his world is messed up, right? And he blames God. I mean, everything's falling apart. He doesn't get the promotion. His relationship with his fiance or his wife, I can't remember which one it is, is on the rocks. You know, it's just, it's just his life is a mess. He's bullied. He's pushed around. And finally, he just tells God, hey, God, I can do this better than you. I can run this world. I can run my life better than you can. And he does, and he tries, and he wrecks everything, 
right? He thinks he's doing the right thing, and everything he does has another you know, counter-reaction that just messes it up. And he, and he gets to the point where his, his, his girlfriend, wife, whatever she is, you know, can't stand him anymore. She, she's brokenhearted because of She can't stand him. She's just brokenhearted. She's wounded because he just keeps screwing up over and over and over again. And so we find Bruce at his moment of just bottoming out, um, standing in the middle of a street. And, and this is where we're going to pick up this clip. If you'll play it for us. I love that clip. It's total surrender. It's God, I, I can't control and manipulate another person. I can't make them feel or do whatever I want them to make them feel or do. And so God, I, I give you everything. I surrender my whole life to you. And that's what God requires and asks of us. He says, stop holding things back. Stop stop giving me 90% or 80% or 75% of your life. I want everything. Look at Jesus calling his early disciples. Luke 5. He says, then Jesus said said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left, what's it say? Everything, and followed him. And after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up and left, what? Everything, and followed him. Hernando Cortez was a Spanish sailor. He had a fleet of, of uh, I think it's uh, 10 boats. And he was headed to Mexico to find the Mayan treasure. And uh, many had tried before and, and weren't successful. They had all at some point perished. He had 500 soldiers and 100 sailors and 11 horses. And when they landed in, in uh, the, the peninsula of Mexico, he gathered all his men together and he gave them this amazing speech. This is what the history books say, or the internet, whichever one you want to go by. This is in this amazing speech. You know, he inspired them and he rallied them and he pulled them all together and, and, and he told them what they were going to gain in this journey of the treasure that's to come. And, and, and it's going to be difficult, but, but if we keep pushing forward, we can do this. And we're going to have all of this for us. This treasure is going to be ours. And he rallied them together and he had them cheering and screaming and he ended his speech with these three words. Burn the boats. And his men were like, what? Burn the boats. Because he knew these men. And if they had something to fall back to, if they had something that they could look back and say, okay, we can always retreat because we have this, we can get home, they were never going to give it their all. So he burned the boats. And he did. And they did. And they succeeded where others failed. And he's not been the only general to burn the boats. Alexander the Great did. The Greek leaders against the Persian Empire burned the boats. And when you burn the boats, you're saying, I'm all in. I'm not holding anything back. I'm giving it all to you. So I put this little quote in your, in your notes. The, the true measure of commitment is not what we give. It is what we withhold. So what are you holding I'm going to say burn the boats. I hold nothing back. See, if we're going to be a committed church, it's going to be 
made up of committed people. They're committed to the calling of God, who have unwavering certainty. Now that doesn't mean as a people and as a group of followers of Jesus that we have all the answers. Your pastor doesn't have all the answers. Some of us think we have all the answers, but we don't. It just means we know. We know the one who does. And we've settled the question who Jesus is. It means we have a non-negotiable allegiance. Not to one community church. I mean, I, I want you to be loyal to us. But I want your allegiance more than anything to be to Jesus. Because that's where I'm going to place my allegiance. And he's the only one that deserves it. You see, if we're going to be committed, it means we have uncompromising character that we follow, that we're holy because Jesus is holy and we live our lives like it, no matter the pressure, no matter the questions, or no matter how difficult it is. And it means we're totally surrendered, that we're not holding anything.